Take pop culture, happy hour, and more with you on the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Surprising interviews, your favorite podcasts, and now an easy way to listen to your favorite station live. NPR One is ready to make driving, commuting, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One in your app store now. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's Pop Culture and Entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we'll check on the plastic superhero with the ego of a king in the Lego Batman movie. Batman? Whoa! You're darn right, whoa. Then we'll check in with the small fries, get it, on Master Chef Jr., And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. But before we get started here in historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. I'm Stephen Thompson with NPR Music. I'm Glenn Weldon. I write for the NPR website. And in our fourth chair to talk Lego Batman is Sam Sanders, who you probably know from NPR's Politics Podcast, who's now preparing for new adventures. Hi, Sam. New adventures. Hi. Good it's, to be here. It's so good to have you. How's, nice to be here. How's everything going with your new adventures? It's good. good. We're like making these little babies and we're about to release the first photo shoot of our infants. <laughs> That's <soon>. exciting. <laughs> we're about to set them in baskets and send those baskets floating down the river. Yes. That's right. that, Someone rescue the babies. That is very <laughs> exciting. And we are always so excited to have you Thank with you. us. Uh, welcome back to the show. So in 2014's The Lego Movie, we all got to know Lego Batman as voiced by Will Arnett. Now he's back with his own film and joining Arnett are the voices of people like Zach Galifianakis as the Joker, Ray Fiennes as Alfred, Rosario Dawson as Batgirl, and Michael Sarah as Robin. There's a very long list of cameos. You are Channing's Tatum and you're Jonah's Hill. And the film is directed by Chris McKay, who was an editor on the Lego movie a couple of years ago and written by a team that includes McKay and Seth Graham Smith who wrote uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, as well as Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. (laughs) When we were talking about going to this movie, you know, we were all psyched because if you listened to our episode about the Lego movie, we all kind of enjoyed the Lego movie. Sam, on the other hand, not as excited about going to this as we were. Did you you not see the Lego movie, Sam, or did you not like the Lego movie? I existed in the zeitgeist around the Lego movie, so I heard that darn song, Everything is Awesome, for a good six months, and I knew the movie was there, and everyone said it was good, and I was just like, I don't feel the urge to watch Legos for an hour and a half, so I never watched it. You never watched it. But I went into the Batman Lego movie prepared to be entertained, Yeah. and for the most part, I was. Yeah. So what did you think? I thought that it was a movie that was very good at being clever, not always very good at being smart. Hmm, interesting. Great cultural references, really quick, funny humor. It was funny. Yes. But about halfway through, I knew how the film was going to end. Yeah. And the plot became a bit boilerplate and not at all surprising in in any way. Like, I I wanted not so much a twist, but something that was going to make me go, huh, yeah. That didn't happen. You got kind of what you were. Yes. You got a kind of what you But what it was funny. I mean, like, as soon as they had the joke referencing how all coupons from Bed Bath & Beyond never expire, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you got me. That's good. That's a good joke. I like that joke. Yeah. Uh, what did you think, Thompson? I was a huge fan of the Lego movie. Loved the original 
the original Lego movie. It's just like some amazing legacy project. Not the reboot. Yeah, not the not the 1986 reboot. Yeah. And my view of the Batman character as he's woven into to the original Lego movie is that he's he's cilantro. He's a he's that supporting flavor who doesn't necessarily need uh, his own entire franchise to build up around him. I mean, part of the way they have fun with their Lego version of Batman is that he's a preening jackass and they play up the fact that he is a preening jackass. I thought he was funny in the Lego movie. I was wrong because this, I loved this movie. I thought he was hilarious in it. Uh, I think you said it was, it was funny, not smart, Sam. I, I feel like funny is smart. Yeah. And I just, I laughed consistently through the whole thing. I thought there, I loved the way it scattered like a million little Easter eggs throughout. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that if you want to build a franchise and you want to encourage people to see your movie several times in the theater and kind of pay, you know, pay to see it a couple times is pack it so full of jokes that you feel like you miss 25 yeah. or 30% of them along the way. They uh, did that. And, and they did that. And so I've forgotten more jokes, you know, in, in, in this movie than, than I remember. But I just spent the whole time grinning and giggling and enjoying Easter eggs. There are even Easter eggs kind of in the casting. I think the casting of Michael Sarah as Robin to Will Arnett's Batman mm-hmm. feels like a great big homage to Arrested Development. I don't even want to give away all the cameos. I, I encourage people not to read a cast list and enjoy the voices that fu- that pop up in funny concepts. I will give away the fact that the mayor is played by Mariah Carey. Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? I made direct eye contact oh with Sam Sanders God. when I said it. Yeah, okay, now favorite. I love this movie. I think it all bad. Best film of all time. Steven, uh, Steven loved it. Very, very pro. I would say the person I would expect to be most into this movie was Glenn. Yes. In part because it is a Batman movie. So what did you think? I got about five minutes into this when I started to suspect that this movie was bioengineered in a vast underground testing facility expressly for the purpose of lighting up my pleasure receptors like the 4th of July. <laughs> Started to suspect that. And then there was a Jim Cotta joke. Yes! And I thought to myself, okay, this is this is getting creepy. What was a Jim Cotta joke? Uh, they just made a reference to Jim Cotta. Robin knows Jim Cotta, uh, which is, of course, gymnastics skills, karate kills. So it's an old uh, Kirk Thomas film uh, uh, with which I'm obsessed. The Easter eggs have Easter eggs in this movie. Yeah. Every sign is a reference to something from the films or the comics. Uh, something like the casting of... Doug Benson as Bane. Yes. Doug Benson has a podcast called Doug Loves Movies, on which he has been doing the Bane voice for five years. <laughs> and that's what I mean. There's a comedic sensibility, very specific comedic sensibility to this film that is my comedic <laughs> sensibility. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's also this, this, I think this film, not to make too much of it, but it represents something. This character always cycles from light to dark and light to dark, and it's not a coincidence that whenever in the culture he cycles into light, he also goes from being a loner, a dark, brooding loner, to somebody with, to to basically a father figure, having Robin and Batgirl and everybody around him, leader of this kind of bat brood. That's what happens when we take him from dark to light. We are at the cusp right now. We just had Batman versus Superman, which is about the nadir of the loner, badass, Batman as you can get. Mm-hmm. This represents, I come to you at the turn of the tide. Uh, this this <laughs> is the moment when we can allow this character to not be the goth adolescent brooder. Because again, the arc of this film, the narrative arc of this film is for Batman to accept other people. To understand that he has limitations on his own and that only by being open to relationships, being open to other people, does he become fully himself. Out of all of us who loved the Lego movie, 
I may have loved the Lego movie the most. Why? Um, mm-hmm. It was really one of my favorite movies of that year. It's so funny and it's so joyful. I'm going to watch yeah. it tonight. It is so joyful and it has this central Chris Pratt performance that's very like sort of innocent and goofy that I really loved for that reason. I also felt like it had a lot of Lego jokes. Like it has a lot of jokes about kind of how what water looks like when it cascades and it's made of Legos. Um <laughs> And I went into this with some of the same suspicion as Steven that I wasn't 100% positive I wanted to see one where Batman was the central character rather than a side character. And to me, that was a little bit borne out. I would say about this movie, I would say liked it, didn't love it. Mm-hmm. I was very conscious of how many jokes I was missing because I'm not a Batman aficionado, which it's perfectly legit for them to make a movie that has more value to a Batman aficionado, right? Who's going to understand, for example, that there's a giant kind of collection of bad guys that's rattled off that I think a lot of people who see it will assume that some of them are made up. Right, are not real historical Batman. Oh, that long list where they yes. go through all the enemies? They're uh, all real. You're, no, really? Yes. Your Zebra Man, your Condiment Wait, King. Wait, Condiment King is real? Yes. Your Crazy Quilt. <laughs> I just can't. Your Kite Man. Which is much funnier if you know that they're uh, real. Yeah, right? I was just like, I, why do they have Condiment King up in this thing? I felt like that was just a rapid fire string of jokes. Whether you think they're real or not, I thought they were so funny. Yeah, and I... That was one of the few places where I did feel like it had tons of different jokes. My only beef with kind of the humor of it, the joke density, is that I feel like it has a limited number of jokes that it kind of goes back to over and over and Mm. over again. And the funny thing is, you know, Glenn says, and I think it's true, and I knew this from having read Glenn's book about Batman and talked (laughs) to Glenn about Batman quite a bit, this idea that, you know, this is an arc of Batman accepting that he can't just be a loner. But... In many ways, if you're not talking about Batman, that's actually the classic kind of middle-aged male anti-hero plot. My friend who used to say that every, which of course this is a massive, uh, you know, generalization, but used to say that every guy thinks that the song Desperado was written about him. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, It's that kind of. Oh, you know, you you can't be a, you know, no no man is an island. It's it's not that interesting of a dramatic idea to me. So the funny thing is for Batman, it's classic and correct, but for a movie, it's kind of just another story like that. I think that. that's what I felt cuz I felt like nothing about the arc of the plot. Well, right. Gave it, me anything that like right. threw me for a loop. Yeah. And, and you could almost say like it's like Hallmark movies where the cold businessman has to learn to love. Like <laughs> and it's adopt not, somebody. Exactly. And adopt a, a kid. It's like I felt a little let down by the not so much the jokes as the comedic ideas. I have another point that I just thought of when you were talking about this trope of a man who needs to figure out a way to rely on people around him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And I thought about how this movie compares to the plot of the new Fox drama Star. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let me connect these dots for you Explain. guys. Connect. So Star is a spinoff of Lee Daniels' Empire in which these three teenish-aged girls begin to form a female supergroup. One of the three is clearly the star. Her name actually is Star. Mm-hmm. And the whole tension for the whole show that I've seen so far, six episodes, is whether or not she leaves the group to go solo or stays with the group and makes them all famous, one of whom is her sister who has a drug problem, whatever. And there's this tension about what Star is going to do. Is she going to stay with her friends and make the group happen or go solo? And in the series, 
she's you know that she'll be fine either way because she's that much of a star. So you're constantly questioning what is star going to do? Yeah. So for me to compare that to this movie where you have this plot line where you realize about halfway through the only solution is for Batman to team up with his friends. It takes out all of the guesswork and I'm no longer on my toes because I know that he has to stay in the super group. He has to be a part of star of the group to make it all work. Like there's no more questions for me and I'm, I don't have to wonder at all once I realize this is only resolved by him and Batgirl and Robin. Just another parallel between <laughs> Lee Daniels' star and the Lego Batman movie. Brought to you by Sam Sanders. I love it. I'm just I love saying. it. No, yeah. I get it. One of the things that I also think is interesting is that even to me, as somebody who doesn't know one twentieth of the Batman history that Glenn does, there still were, for me, a bunch of references that I got, right? Mm-hmm. There are little, I think, as with the Lego movie, they take advantage of all the things that they have the right to reference mm-hmm. and to show. So you get, for example, kind of references to the previous Batman movies. Yeah. Right? Oh uh, God, because so essentially, I don't know if you would agree with this, Glenn, but I think what they posit here is that all of the previous Batman movies, your Tim Burton movie and your Schumacher and all that stuff, mm-hmm. all the previous Batman movies, at least of the modern era. Well, also the, th- the serials. Everything is this same universe. Mm-hmm. Everything is this same Batman. And so they're constantly trying to sort of explain how he's done all these different things. And you said when we were coming out of the theater you sort of put this film in the context of other Batman movies. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the best Batman film that's ever been made. Uh, and it's but not you th- said that about the Lego movie. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, I, I also think that's... Uh, uh, <laughs> it's not the best superhero film ever made, because that remains uh, The Incredibles, uh, which is it's oh, just yeah, the, I love that the one. smartest way of using this kind of storytelling. This thing has third act problems because it's a superhero movie, and that's the law. Right. So it just keeps going yeah. on when you think an ending could have arrived. Yeah. If this thing only did this one thing. If it only cast Billy D. Williams as Two Face, for real. Wait, really? For real. Tell yes. that story. He was. How did I not catch any of these voices? <laughs> because <laughs> Billy D. Williams played Harvey Dent in the 1989 mm-hmm. Tim Burton film. Joel Schumacher came along and let's say went another direction. So for <laughs> generations, oh my goodness, <laughs> the role of Two Face has been outside of Billy D. Williams' clutches, and now he gets it. And the Lego version of Two-Face looks like Billy D. Williams. It's this sensibility. We are now looking at this character from inside. Uh, for the second time in the 78-year history of the character, this character is coming into the cultural consciousness to be made fun of in a big way. Happened in 1966. The difference is, in 1966, think about how we made fun of him then. He was the square. He was the establishment. He drank milk. He was careful chum pedestrian safety. That's because that choice to make a Batman show in 1966... And you're talking here about the Adam West. Right, the Adam yeah. West Word television show. That decision came down from the network because they couldn't get the rights to Superman or Dick Tracy, so they decided to make a Batman show. It was network suits saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take these comic books, this piece of junk culture, and just play it straight. We're going to play it like we're doing Ibsen's The Dollhouse, and that's where the fun will come from. This film is making fun of the character in a very different way. We are making fun of him because he takes himself so damn seriously. In other words, this is a reaction to decades and decades and decades of a very specific kind of fan insisting Mm -hmm. that this is the only way this character makes sense if he is this. If he is a goth, loner, badass. That's the only metric they use, how badass he is. So the idea that we are now 
finally breaking free and that we we see this character differently because we're not just looking at the character, we're looking at all the BS that's been built up around him by this very hardcore fan base, which insists on itself, which insists on there's only one way to take this character seriously, and that's for him to have no humor at all. Right. Uh, that it seems to me it's a, it's a very important thing that we're jettisoning, and I'm all for it. This movie's made with intense love of its source material. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, I will be curious to hear what all of you who go to see Lego Batman think about it. So come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH and tell us what you think of Lego Batman. Sam will be back at the end of the show to share what's making him happy this week. When we come back, our own Cat Chow will be with us to talk about MasterChef Junior. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Showtime. Billions, the epic power struggle between two New York titans who will stop at nothing to take each other down. Set in the high-powered world of finance, it's a game of big egos, big money, and big stakes. Billions returns Sunday, February 19th at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. Catch up on the first season now. Download the Showtime app now to start your free trial. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Check out the Ask Me Another podcast for hilarious puzzles, word games, and trivia. Test your knowledge of odd food with Cat Cora, stage superhero fights with Wyatt Cenac, and roll a 20-sided die with David Harbour from Stranger Things. Ask Me Another is your favorite game night, but a whole lot funnier. Play along now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Now, while we were on our break, Sam Sanders scooted out of our fourth chair, but we have someone to come and sit in it. Our own Cat Chow is with us from New York. Hello, Cat. Hey, glad to be here. It is so good to have you with us. Cat is a member of our Code Switch team. Cat is here for a conversation that is near and dear to my own heart, both as a person who likes to cook and a person who likes to think that I am somewhat young at heart. We're talking, of course, about Fox's Master Chef Junior, which returned this week for its fifth season. Now, if you know Gordon Ramsay mostly as the Hell's Kitchen host who calls people donkeys and tells them their food looks like an old shoe, <laughs> you might be surprised to hear that on MasterChef Junior, he's quite affectionate and supportive to the group of young chefs that comes in to compete. Now, MasterChef Junior joins other kids' reality shows both inside and outside the cooking realm, including Chop Junior, Kids Baking Championship, which I've talked about before, and Project Runway Junior. And we are here to separate the naughty from the nice. Now, Kat... I want to ask you, have you historically watched MasterChef Junior? I know you're an HGTV person. Are you a young people cooking person? I am a young people cooking person, but I, I don't really venture away from stuff that isn't on Food Network. So oh, MasterChef Junior, I would watch in passing if it right. was on. Because that's, that's on Fox. Yeah, but yeah. I did watch a lot of it this past weekend. So. How'd it go? So, okay, I wasn't expecting to feel so emotional the entire time I was watching. Uh, I was like, this whole show is about kids crying and me thinking as an adult, I don't think I would be able to not cry. Yeah, when you eliminate them and stuff like that. Yeah, or even when they're having their <laughs> their meltdowns yeah. as they're cooking. I mean, it just is such a good stress test. Yeah. Um, but yeah. also, they cut away from the reactions. When they do cut somebody, at least in that opening, who gets the apron, you know, those first two episodes, um, they cut away from the kids' emotional reactions. Yeah. You just see the two winners come out and, yeah. and, and get, get <laughs> cheered. They 
deliberately prevent you from seeing the breakdowns. And I think that's new to this season. Smart. I have watched all four seasons up to the point of the season and then the first couple episodes. And that business of, like, who's it going to be? Who's going to get an apron? I think they're sparing you some ugly footage with yeah. that, I guess. Yeah, and the funny thing is this show has always distinguished itself from reality shows that involve adults in that it eliminates kids in pairs, which I have always thought mm-hmm. was really yeah. smart. So you tend not to have one kid who goes home and has to take the long walk all alone, <laughs> um, which is different from, for example, on Kids Baking Championship, you know, you do have one kid at a time who gets eliminated. When I watch MasterChef Junior and they cut two at a time, I always think it's a little easier to walk out with another kid yeah. than it is to walk out all by yourself. I've always thought that was a really clever innovation. The other thing I noticed, I went back and watched the first season of MasterChef Junior. And in the first season, and they don't do this anymore, but in the first season, the entire time in the early episodes, the parents are watching from this kind of overhead balcony type Ah. of arrangement right (laughs) over the railing. They've got their eye on Gordon Ramsay. Well, that's the thing is I thought, why do you suppose they had that and they don't have it now? And I thought, to Americans at the time that this show started... If you weren't, you know, sort of already into watching MasterChef, there was a chance that your main exposure to Gordon Ramsay involved him swearing at people on Hell's Kitchen or on Kitchen Nightmares, at which point you would think the idea of him doing this with kids is not charming. So you put the parents there so that everybody sees the parents are watching and supervising the entire thing. They haven't left their kids (laughs) (laughs) to the tender mercies of someone who often calls people donkeys. But they don't do that anymore because I think by now everybody knows. Now people know. Now people know that, you know, you got your uh, your Gordon Ramsay, you got your, uh, who, your uh, Christina Tozzi, who comes from Momofuku Milk Bar, and uh, and then it, it's not, is it not Graham Elliott anymore? Okay, so here's the, I did want to talk about this because they have changed sub-hosts, yeah. I guess you would call them. Yeah. Just judges. The first few seasons, you have Graham Elliott, who's uh-huh. now on Top Chef, right. which is clearly maybe part of the reason he's not here anymore. Mm, right. And they had, uh, in the first three seasons, a guy named Joe Bastianich, yeah. uh, who was on MasterChef Italy, yeah. and who I really loved and yeah. really missed when they took him off, in part because he talks exactly like Frosty the Snowman from the <laughs> Rankin Bass cartoons. And I, I watched this show with Unexpected. My, I watched this show with my kids and every time Joe Bastianich would talk I would go, happy birthday! <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I also, and my kids thought it was funny like the first yeah. 80 times I did it. I also hilarious. really like Graham Elliott. I did too. Um, who I miss. But what, do you, what is your reaction to this I, show, Glenn? I had never watched MasterChef before. I'd never watched MasterChef Junior before. I, I kind of an old school Top Chef guy, uh, mm. so I stick to them. And it's not because of anything except the judges. I know and trust those judges, and that's why I watch uh, reality competitions, is, is for right. articulate judging that, mm-hmm. I, that I know. I expected this show to be filled with cute, precocious children. What I was not prepared for is how incredibly self-possessed these kids yeah. seem. Yes. How ah. they kind of know themselves in a way I still do not know myself. Yeah. Uh, I, I <laughs> exactly. didn't have a favorite food at age 12. <laughs> they they know how to produce 16 different kinds of uh, cuisines. I do watch Project Runway Junior, which is, you know, sort of related. That, however, I do for a very different reason. That feels to me like almost a political act to see a little 12-year-old kid in a confessional 
staring at the camera saying, I describe my design aesthetic as risque couture. That just feels, <laughs> it warms Madame heart is yeah. what it does. Yeah. It's just, it feels, it yeah. feels like a tiny act of defiance. It yeah. feels like a, a, a testament to selfhood. Yeah. And I just love it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I was just impressed with these kids. You know, I, I like that we don't see them weep a lot. And I, yeah, I'm not totally. looking forward to that if that's going to be the future of the show. Yeah. I will say, I, th- I think there are some structural flaws in MasterChef Junior that have played out over the first several seasons. And I think one of them is, I think the age range, 8 to 13, is a little too broad. Yeah. It's it is very big. Fundamentally yeah. different and human beings. Different palettes. Yeah. Your, your yeah. palette is formed differently at 13 than it is at 8. Now, I don't want to spoil outcomes of the, of the first few seasons for those who want to go back and, and mainline the series. It's very mainlineable. But you have a little bit of a theme in the early seasons where you have a kind of hard charging 13 year old boy yeah kind of mm-hmm. kind of run roughshod a little bit right. over over sweet eight-year-olds there's there's a bias i think in the early seasons toward the older kids um, particularly the older boys although i will say yes you could shave off the top end of the age range i would not want you to shave off the bottom no. end of the age range right. where like the eight and nine-year-old girls on this show give me hope for every oh, aspect totally. of the future. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. I'm right about this cat, right? Yeah, you are. So I was watching season four this whole weekend. That's all I did. And there's this eight-year-old girl named Kaya who is making oh, like so Duck Larange. I don't really even know what that is, but for an eight-year-old <laughs> to possess that type of finesse and skill. And here's what I was wondering. I mean, do you guys think that I'm sure she was a great chef, especially for an eight-year-old and also in general, but I was wondering, were they just kind of bringing her along throughout the competition to fix that narrative issue? I think one of the things that comes up when you watch this is you think, is it really possible that these kids know this much about cooking, right? As independently as they seem to. So I read a piece from BuzzFeed from 2014 by a writer named uh, Emily Fleischacher. I apologize if that's not the correct pronunciation, but she sort of went behind the scenes a little bit of MasterChef Junior. I think you will not be shocked to hear that there is more coaching of sure. these kids mm-hmm. than you see. You know, there are some some hints given to them about don't forget to salt and stuff like that. Yeah. Also, they run classes for them, or at least at the time they did. They run classes for them in between taping. So they are kind of training them while they are, you know, l- learning to do these challenges. One of the, the interesting pieces of trivia for people who who are Top Chef viewers is that at the time, the culinary producer for this show, the senior culinary producer, I believe, for this show was Sandy Birdsong. And her name, she spells it S-A-N-D-E-E, and she has a mohawk. She was on the third season okay. of Top Chef. She has kind of a gentle southern accent, but she has this mohawk. Mm-hmm. She was a really charming Top Chef yeah. contestant who then became a culinary producer on Top Chef and a culinary producer on MasterChef Junior and a bunch of other cooking shows. This is essentially what she does now, meaning she coordinates the challenges, she gets the food, all that stuff. And so there's a lot of stuff about her in this piece and what she does with the kids. And it was clear that the BuzzFeed writer got to the point where there were certain moments where she was kind of ushered away. And Mm. she thought, oh, well, I wonder whether during all that time there's a lot of shenanigans going on. She still wound up feeling like, eh, there are pieces I was kept from seeing. But then she went and visited a little kid named Jack from one of the early seasons, a, a very kind of short boy. And she went and visited him at home. 
to see if he could really cook. Yeah. And basically she was like, mm, my fear that the entire thing was fake basically evaporated when this <laughs> made me an amazing dinner yeah. uh, and clearly really knows uh, a lot. Well, that touches on something that I think this show and other shows like this have that like Top Chef, for example, doesn't, which is a strong educational component mm-hmm. for the home viewer because the judges are explaining to them exactly right. how and why this went wrong in a way that you wouldn't necessarily do with a Top Chef mm-hmm. contestant because they're professional point. chef. Mm-hmm. This is another reason why I like the great British Bake Off, uh, because that's amateur bakers. And and so a part of the judging is explaining to you what they got wrong yeah, in yeah, a very right. basic way that actually yeah. gives it more kind of service journalism kind of component <laughs> yeah. to it that I really appreciate it. Totally. Yeah. The Kids Baking Championship is the same way in that those kids, I would say, are even maybe more apt to make basic errors. Yeah. Baking is very challenging. Baking is very chemical. If you don't get it exactly right, and a lot of them you can tell they've learned certain things that they've done a bunch of times. But if you throw them off a little bit, they can be really challenged. There was a recent episode where you had to take cake batter and basically either make waffles out of it or make pancakes out of it. And it was clear that it took the kids a lot of adjusting to figure out the differences between cake batter and waffle batter and how it would behave differently in a waffle iron. And so they were throwing out a lot of stuff that was kind of falling apart. I like that. I like that that part of it. Because I think it's interesting. What I like about cooking shows like that, especially where the kids, the children, the kids are given (laughs) a task to, you know, they're demonstrated something and then they have to redo it. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to see how it just makes them think kind of like a puzzle. Yeah. Do you guys ever find that you, you watch as they're introducing the kids? These are children ages 8 to 13 and they introduce one and you say to yourself kind of under your breath. I don't like that kid. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's much more common that I see them, I meet them, and I fall in love with them. This season has a nine-year-old girl named Sid. It sure does. Who said that that her goal on this show is to make Wisconsin proud. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, all I have to say to her is you had better. Yeah. (laughs) History history has its eyes on you, Sid. Uh (laughs) Live up to it, Sid. The pressure is on. Speaking of the future, I just want to say, when the universe is ready, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, as soon as RuPaul's Drag Race Jr. is a thing, (laughs) I am ride or die. (laughs) Oh, you know what's really funny? You could do that. Yeah. You know, I I think you could absolutely do that. Well, I will be curious to hear what all of you Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners think, who are MasterChef Junior viewers, because I know many of you are. And when we come back, Sam Sanders will return so that he and Kat and all of us can share with you what's making us happy this week. A quick shout out to one of our sponsors who brings you this message. Loci, a socially conscious brand with products that act as reminders to find balance. The silicone beaded Loci bracelet features opposing black and white beads. The white bead is infused with water from Mount Everest, and the black bead carries mud from the Dead Sea. These extreme elements from the highest and lowest points on Earth are a reminder to the wearer to find balance. Loci also donates 10% of net profits to charities. Head to LOKAI.com to find your balance today. 
Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? In preparing for the Oscars, I've been trying to catch up with the nominated animated films and poking around in some of the short film category, found a little movie that's nominated for Best Animated Short Film called Pearl. And Pearl is the, uh, it got a few headlines when it was nominated as the first virtual reality film to be nominated for an Oscar. It's technically meant to be watched using one of those like virtual reality goggles, uh, but you can watch it on, uh, among other places, YouTube. You can actually just go to YouTube and there's a little button on the top of the screen that allows you to rotate around and watch this film play out in 360 degrees. The whole thing is set inside a car and you know you can look up through the sunroof or out the various windows as this story plays out with a father and his daughter over the course of years. And it's, it's a very, very sweet movie. It's set to this very, very pretty little song. It's very sentimental. I think it has kind of Pixar values to it, though not necessarily a Pixar look. It is a much lower budget. Uh, the sweetness of this film, I would say it is not necessarily for Glenn's. My main reservation is that these people need to put on some seatbelts, but it is a very, it's a very lovely little movie. You can watch it for free on YouTube. If, if you don't like it, you only spent five and a half minutes on it, but I found it very, very moving. So I recommend this one. It's called Pearl. All right. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? I wrote about this for the blog, but the Santa Clarita Diet is a 10-episode, half-hour sitcom on Netflix starring Drew Barrymore and Timothy Oliphant. And they play a well-heeled California couple of realtors, and they're happy, they have a family, everything's great, and then Drew Barrymore develops a taste for human flesh. It's uh, written and produced, basically, by Victor Fresco of Better Off Ted, and Andy Richter controls the universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's got great cameos and also good supporting roles by Liv Hewson as the daughter who is sardonic, but she's not sullen. And the nerdy neighbor is Skylar Gisondo. He's also very funny. This show is great. I love it. I've watched it twice all the way through because I love what Timothy Oliphant is doing in this role. It is so specific and so funny and so far from what you have seen him do before, if you've just seen Justified and Deadwood. He is in this manic, agitated state grinning to the world so that nobody sees what's happening behind the facade of his family. Uh, he is just so funny. Every single line reading just, just reduces me to giggle. So that is the Santa Clarita Diet. Get past the pilot. Uh, it's worth sticking around. Try the second episode as well. And uh, if you agree with me that he is doing some great stuff there, uh, let me know. All right. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Oh, hey, look who's back. Sam Sanders. Welcome back, Sam. Thank uh, you. It is good to see you again. Tell us what is making you happy this week. A scripted series on Amazon Prime called The Next Steps. It's uh, There's currently 15 episodes up right now. Each one is like under 10 minutes. Super, super short. It's all about a couple, Chris and Beth, played by Anthony Finelli and Lindsay Doolin. And it's all about a relationship that's in a rut. So every episode basically chronicles one of the these couples' arguments. Like the first episode starts with them finishing this date like over dinner, and they argue over who should pay for the bill. Should the guy pay? Should the girl pay? Should the guy have offered to pay just so the girl could have offered to pay? Uh -huh. That's the whole episode. Oh, so you asking me to go to Splitsylvania is you being nice. Uh, first of all, it's Splitsville. Who cares? Well... If you're going to insult me, at least do it correctly. And secondly, yes, that is me being very nice. Because the thing is, Beth, if I were to ask you to dinner, then I would be paying full price. 
or like the next episode is this couple on a hike in LA and they see the guy's ex and he has to say hi and she says hi but then they reenact what it felt like to them each like on their own it's just this really cute study of how a relationship fails but it's not dismal it's not sad it's funny mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it it's super small I don't know where it came from it does not feel like it's from a big studio enterprise but it, it was it was small endearing and warm Tell me again what it's called. It is called The Next Steps. Anthony Finelli and Lindsay Doolin. And where did you find it? Found it on Amazon Prime. Uh, Amazon Prime said that I should watch it, and I said yes. There you go. <laughs> Sometimes the algorithms pay off. Yes. Thank you very much, Sam Sanders. All right, Cat Chow, what is making you happy this week? So I've been really enjoying following this D.C.-based illustrator. Her name is Mari Andrew, and she creates these doodles or cartoons or illustrations every single day. There's usually a new one that depicts something different that she's thinking about. So maybe she's sort of ruminating on what it means to be vulnerable or what it means to eat dinner alone in a restaurant. And so those are really helpful for helping me process the news of the day and kind of inspiring me, too. I was just going to ask, is that why you? got started kind of drawing little pictures in your uh, your Instagram. Yes, that is why. So shout out to Mari Andrew for helping make that a thing for me. Okay, can you spell uh, Mari Andrew so people yes. can find Yes, so it? people can follow her on Instagram at by Mari, M-A-R-I, Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Kat Chow. So uh, what is making me happy this week? I read a beautiful piece on BuzzFeed by Rahawa Hale called How Black Books Lit My Way Along the Appalachian Trail. And this is a woman who wrote about hiking the 2,000 plus miles of the Appalachian Trail. So she talks a lot about her relationship with books, a lot about her relationship with these particular books, a lot about hiking in general and the kind of the culture of hiking, and then a lot about the intersection of race and hiking, the intersection of race and hiking this trail in particular, and in fact, the intersection of race and the kind of relationship with the outdoors in general and with kind of the freedom to be outdoors and and experience, I guess I would say, unself-conscious freedom, which she's kind of arguing is never available to her in the same way that it is to a lot of the people that she meets on the trail who are mostly white. It's a fascinating piece and beautifully, beautifully written. Uh, There are some extraordinarily poetic paragraphs about the math of hiking, the ounces of this that you carry and the miles that you walk. It's absolutely gorgeous. And again, it's called How Black Books Lit My Way Along the Appalachian Trail by Rahawa Hale. And uh, it's on BuzzFeed. So that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can follow Sam at Sam Sanders and Kat at Kat Chow, K-A-T-C-H-O-W. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer, Emeritus and Music Director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T. CIF. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week.